turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And before I open in prayer, I'd just like to give a one-minute report of our afternoon. Some of us went to St. Lawrence Rehab um, this, this afternoon, and I was telling, telling my wife of a handful of times that I've been to St. Lawrence Rehab and nursing homes. This might have been just the most special afternoon, just feeling how God led and worked. Um, just five people came besides the six from our church, but I started by, as we normally do, go around and hear where everybody's from and their names, and this one lady started off and saying that she, with her Polish accent, was from Poland, um, born in 1937-38, having to, she was Jewish, escape um, Poland into France, and telling how she had to become a Catholic to hide her Jewish um, ethnicity. And then she just remained Catholic, kind of agnostic. And then we went to the next lady, Fran, and she, you know, gave a little bit about herself. I should say the lady previous said, I'm, you know, Catholic, and, and she knew we were from the Baptist church. She said, what's the difference between the Catholic and Baptist church? I said, well, I'll get into that in a moment. And the next lady said, I'm also Catholic. And so we went through, and then we got to Paige, who was 100 years old, and telling us about her journey in life, just, just fascinating, but a, a solid believer. And so Irene, the first lady, brought up something again, wanted to hear more about the difference of the two churches. And so at that point, I just sensed the Lord was nudging, and I scrapped my notes and just got into um, really the biggest difference in how, and I said, if I could put all the world religions into two containers, those that believe you have to do and those that believe it's done, and just going from there and explaining it, and just hammering home the gospel, being able to go step by step, um, and they were so in tune and riveted and repeating things that I was saying. Um, and just was just awesome opportunity and sharing the gospel with the two ladies. Um, they didn't make a profession of faith, but we gave them um, tracks and gave my number. And the one lady said, I- I'd like to talk to you later. Hopefully, uh, Lynn and I can visit her when she's in Princeton. But just a, a sweet opportunity and sensing how God was leading and working and, and-, and just their attention. So... You know, we talk about how precious Jesus Christ is. Well, he's so precious to us, we should want to share the gospel. And we, we praise God for opportunities when we get such opportunities to talk about a Lord that's so precious to us. So pretty, uh, pretty sweet opportunity. So thank you for those that are faithful on that um, behind-the-scenes ministry, um, but a precious ministry being able to share the gospel with people that are uh, moments away, if I could put it that way, into stepping into eternity, um, but where God's working and leading. Let's open in prayer. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and in our ministries of our church. And Father, we want to just talk of the Lord that's so precious, more precious than gold of silver. And may that be true in our lives daily. God, may we not be so wrapped up in the temporal things of life or the horizontal things of life. And God, to look at you and to be driven, um, to be in ministry, to be about building your church for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, please. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You know, to many people, modern life is, is really pointless and futile. What is the purpose of life? And thus evolution adding to that, that there's really no purpose, there's no direction, because we're just here perchance. Dr. G.N. Clark, some hundred years ago, when speaking as president of Cambridge University, said this, there is no secret and no plan in history to be discovered. Contrary to Dr. Clark's statement, the Bible reveals that there are many purposes, there are many, many plans for, for which we have been made. There's a reason for our existence. And we step into this passage when Christ says, I will build my church. And it just bombards us that God has a plan for us, that God has a purpose for us, and that God's working his great purpose on earth and that we could be part of that. When we think of who God is and the part that we have in that, we should shout, God, what an awesome privilege, what an awesome responsibility that we have to be part in, in what he's doing in the world and building his church. Well, stepping into this passage, Christ is entering into Caesarea Philippi, and I probably will say this much in the next year and a half, but we'll be there. We'll be there, some of us, in another year and three months, and we'll really get to understand this passage is going to pop at you, but we'll take a little shot at it tonight. The disciples, as they enter into this area, Caesarea Philippi, which is in the shadows of Mount Hermon in the northern part of, of Galilee, part of Israel, and as they're coming into this area, they realize the opposition to Jesus was growing. It was getting stronger more and more, and the multitudes were becoming, if I may say, even more skeptical. And so as they grow and get into this area... And there, maybe even some of the disciples are starting to get disillusioned. Jesus, why aren't you bringing in the kingdom? Are you going to bring in the kingdom now? Where's the earthly kingdom? And they just don't see it happening. They're waiting for Rome to be abolished and for God, to, Christ, to, to bring about his earthly kingdom. And Christ asked the question. He says, who do men say that I am? And 13 and 14, as I read John the Baptist or Elijah, maybe one of the other great prophets, but then Jesus gets pointed and says to him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, he just nails it. Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew phrase. And he says, I believe that you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. But you see why this is such an awesome statement is because of where they are. They're in Caesarea Philippi, known as Beneus. It's where the headwaters of the Jordan flowing off of Mount Hermon meet and flows and goes south from there. And in this area was a very idolatrous area. In fact, there was a shrine erected to Caesar, and thus you have the name Caesarea Philippi, but it's also where the god Pan was worshipped. And you'll see, in fact, here's a snapshot of, the, of this area, and you have this big cave, and you have these little niches in the rock where they would worship their god. And where they, we assume that God Pan was placed in one of these niches, if not in all of them, and it would become a place where idolatry and paganism would just scream forth in the northern part of Israel. Well, here is in this setting, who do men say that I am? And Peter, 
irregardless of what people may believe in this idolatrous area, he makes the incredible statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, declaring no matter what people may say about the God Pan, no matter how Caesar may declare that he is a God, you are the God, you are the Christ. And from that statement, based on that dynamic confession, the Lord places the words that we're about to read. He wants to unfold to his disciples his master plan, no matter what's happening. And it's about to get a lot tougher. In fact, in verse 21, he'll mention that they are going to, that he is going to suffer. They're going to, to crucify him. They're going to kill him. It's going to get pretty tough. But Christ gives them a promise. I am going to build my church. So my goal is, if I were to put it in a statement, in a, in a big idea statement, we the church are to help build the church. God has this view. God has this vision. He's building the church. We're the church. And we're going to see that we're part of that building and what he's doing. I will build my church. You know, Christ doesn't say here, you know, when he's looking at, at this focus, you know, I'm hoping to, he makes a promise, I'm going to build the church. Let me just address for a moment, because I don't want to center in this, the, may I call it the problem of Peter? I don't really want to focus too much on the problem of Peter, but I want to focus on, may I say, the promise of Jesus. What I mean by the problem of Peter, many will look at this and, and believe that it's teaching in this passage that Peter and his profession was to be the one that the church was going to be built off of. It's off of the statement that he makes, and thus, well, he's the rock, he's the one that's the center, and thus will try to say that from Peter will follow various successors to where we have today the present gentleman sitting in Rome. But we don't have such a view. We believe that it's not built off of a man, but off of the creator of the universe, off of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Upon this rock, Christ says, he's the rock, he's the Petra, not some little stone, Lithos, like Peter, says, I'm bought off of me. Who I am will be, the, will be the church. The rock upon which the church is built. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we know that Christ is the foundation. Christ is the, the, the basis upon which the church is built. A great hymn that we enjoy, hymn 401, the church is one foundation. We're during a heated period in, in English history in an Anglican church, and they're struggling with who is, who is Christ, and it's becoming a little more liberal in certain stance. And this gentleman wrote this hymn, and Pastor Stone wanted to be understood. We have one foundation, and Jesus Christ is that foundation. That's just now all backdrop. I want us to look at, if I may say, four points as we look at this statement of Christ saying, I will build the church. Let's take a big view. I'd like us to step back, if we can, from this and look at the big view of Christ when he says, I will build my church, instead of being zeroed in on just one specific passage. We know what church means. What does church mean? It means what? Ecclesia. Called out ones, right? Ek out, um, kaleo, called out ones. So it's called out ones. But I want to broaden it that that God has had a program from the beginning of the creation of man, that he is calling out a people. He is gathering a people. I'm not confusing Old Testament to be the church that would begin after Pentecost, but I am talking about a gathering of people. When God made Adam and Eve, he is gathering a people to himself. So the big view is 
Christ God has been calling people to himself. He made Adam and Eve. And then sin came rampant. And sin is just com- coming upon the earth. And he called Noah and his family. He has a specific pur- purpose. He's gathering man to himself. And then we step into Genesis 12. And we see God calling Abraham. That God has a purpose and he's calling Abraham. And what, what's the great promise he says to Abraham? You remember? I will bless you and what will happen to all f- families of the earth? And families of the earth shall be blessed. So I will bless all of the families. So he's saying to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have a seed. And through you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how will they be blessed? By the Messiah coming and bringing a people to himself. So God's big plan has been always to bring a people to himself. We step then into the promise to David in 2 Samuel. And he says to David that I am going to, through your seed, I will raise up an offspring, and I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. So God utters these words, and I, oh, you know what, Peter, that is so, that is so sweet of you. You know, I'm going to build my church. Let's, let's come together with this plan now. So he's always had a plan. I'm going to build this church. I'm going to put together this great gathering of people. And it really begins in the Old Testament. So irregardless of what teachers down in Georgia might say, the Old Testament isn't really important because we just want to preach New Testament truth, a.k.a. Andy Stanley. But we understand that the Old Testament is important as a foundation upon which the New Testament is built. And so this great gathering as Christ steps now into the New Testament So we have Peter even talking how they looked, Old Testament prophets looked as they were writing. They wanted to understand what is this great gathering? What is this Messiah? What's going to happen? This this, this great program ministry that he's putting together. So we step into this passage. I will build my church. So the big view of Christ comes, zeroes down right into this promise and into this confession. Christ says, I'm going to build my church. Notice the tense of the verb. What is the tense of the verb, Mrs. English teacher? (laughs) Future tense. But you knew that. The future tense. I will build my church. So he's giving a promise. It's not happening right then because what had to happen before the church was built? You had to have the crucifixion, right? And what else has to happen? Kind of important, right? A resurrection. And then you had to have what else? Before we get to ascension, you had to have the great commission. Go and make disciples. And then there is the ascension. And then he's waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. The gift of the Holy Spirit to empower believers. So now everything's in place for the building of the church. I will build my church. You know, I, I look at that and I get a little snapshot of God's building by, by just the sweet opportunity to share the gospel. We're to love the gospel but to share a little bit this afternoon and to see that God could take six people from faith in this ministry down there at, at a senior rehab, at a rehab place and mostly seniors and just maybe he's pulling aside the curtains in a person's life to plant gospel seed for people to get saved. We see he's building his church. I will build my church. We think of some, some great hymns. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore or the hymn, on that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Well, you see, this is the big view. Christ is building his church. Well, we have to ask the question, well, how is Christ building the church? 
How is it going to come about? The church is under construction, but what is the means? How does it happen? You get it? The church is under construction by means of the preaching of the gospel. I will build. It's not, the building is not going to happen without the gospel. You throw the gospel out, we throw the church out. It's not going to be built. It's built by means of preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel reduced in its finest, finest sentence, sentence definition? Where does your mind go? Maybe 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins and rose again according to the Scripture, and that he was buried and that he rose again. So the gospel is the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, shedding his blood for our sins and Christ rising again. So the gospel as is preached, the church is constructed. We won't turn there, but listen in your, if you would, with your ears as we walk through Acts chapter 2 through through 20. Here's the church under construction, and God shows us his construction by reading the, the book of Acts. It begins in Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit came down, and Peter, as he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching, it says in Acts chapter 2, as he's preaching Christ to the people, and he's calling them, and it's two key words that are picked up, repentance and faith, and we come to verse 47, and it says, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So you have repentance after Christ is preached, and they put their faith. So what was the means? Preaching the gospel, that Christ died for their sins and rose again. And we continue through the book of Acts, and we come to Acts chapter 8. Remember, Acts 1-8 is the blueprint for the whole book. And so we step into Acts chapter 8, verse 4, and we see that there's persecution, and they're scattered throughout Samaria and throughout the world. Then we come to Acts 8, verse 5, and here's Philip. It says he went to Samaria, and what did he do? It says he preached Christ to them. Well, what's another word for Christ? Can we say the word, say it with me, gospel, right? So he preached Christ to them. He's preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. People are putting their faith and trust in Christ. Then we get a little snapshot. God said, let me show you what's really going to happen. And he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, how do you think the gospel got down to Africa? Is it fair to think that maybe this this, this man, this Ethiopian, took it with him. So the gospel's exploding. God is building his church. He makes a statement in Caesarea Philippi and Beneus in the midst of paganism. And he says, I will build my church. You know, it wasn't looking real positive then. People were after Christ. They were skeptical of him. They were doubting him. The religious leaders were putting together their plan to kill him. And Christ would say in verse 21, I'm going to die. That doesn't sound like a good blueprint for building a, a powerful organization. But, oh, I love the question of this Jewish lady today. She says, how is it that this faith has become all over the world? See, God has built his church and it exploded and it comes through the gospel. Oh, we step into then Acts chapter 20. And here is God has saved Paul the missionary to the Gentiles in, in Acts 8, 9. We step into Acts 20, 21, and I want to talk about the Ephesians and connect it quickly to the book of Ephesians. So here is, 
In Ephesians 20, 20, 21, he is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders and he tells them, I'm not, we're not going to meet any longer. And he says to them, I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, but I've shown you and taught you repentance and faith. So he showed them everything and that led to repentance and faith. What is he preaching to them? He's preaching what? The gospel. He preached the gospel to them. And it would say in verse 31 and 32, Paul said he proclaimed the gospel and built them up in the faith. So they're being built up in the faith. They're hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, and they're growing in the sweetness of the word of God. In fact, he would say in Ephesians 1.13 to them, and he said to them, the word he proclaimed, the word of truth, I quote, the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. So the Ephesians heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation, and it took them from chapter 2, they're blind and it made them no longer foreigners and aliens, but members of the family of God. So to Ephesus, it exploded. They became members of the household of God, family of God. What did the gospel produce? It brought the Ephesian church into the family of God, household of God. You know, you heard the saying, you could choose your friends, but you can't choose your yeah, you can't choose your family. Well, you know, we're family. I can't choose you, but we're, no, just kidding. But isn't that sweet, though, that we're family, that we're brought together in the family, in the household of God? And what brought it? The gospel. The gospel being preached. I need to speak the gospel more to my life, but just being able to talk, giving the plan of salvation this afternoon, then what they need to do is putting their faith and trust in Christ and just sharing my testimony of back in 1970, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as, as my Savior, I think I was just two years old. <laughs> um, but when, I, when, when God changed my life and that, that transformation that happened and all that, that God did, Christ is emphasizing the building of his church, and that means would be by the gospel. You know, we could talk about, about the church, how decadent it is today, and it is, how how how. Um, godless it is today and how apathetic it is and how, how liberal it is and how dead it is and how there's false teachers. And yeah, we get upset with the Copelands and the, and the Benny Hens and Joel Osteens. They're, they sickened us. But you know what? God is still going to be faithful and true to his word. I will build my church, no matter if there are false teachers out there. You can have churches that aren't churches. Church of Scientology, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But they're not real churches. But God's building his church. I will build my church. Just to pause for a moment. So what is our responsibility? So what does that mean to us? What are we to do? How, how is he building his church? Is, is there suddenly going to be this, this sky lighting up, an angel hovering over? Mike, you need to repent. Is that what's happening? No, how did you repent? Someone shared the gospel with you. Someone comes and shares the word. God uses people. So he's building the church, and the church is being constructed by means of the gospel, but it's, it's the preaching of the gospel. Let's look at, look at the, a phrase here. Christ says, I will build my church. Does this word my do anything for you? What does my mean? It's a pretty awesome, is it a personal pronoun? Kind of, right? Yeah, it's pretty possessive too. It's mine. 
I will build my church. It means it belongs to the speaker or is associated with the speaker. Is that fair to say? My church. It belongs to or associated. You know, we, Pastor in his notes, and this morning we, we had in our small group notes how to overcome, really it's a, it's a thinking issue, you know, of, of immoral thinking, and which turns into immoral actions. Well, it's a hard issue. But as we were talking my group, I think a great way to be reminded to overcome, speak the gospel often to yourself. Be reminded from where you've come and what God's done for you. Because if I change my affections, as I change my desires, as I change my wants, then my thoughts and my actions will be different. Our thought process. Well, here, let me think about my, I will build my church. Who is the speaker? It is Jesus Christ. He's not a man, but he's the God creator of the universe. He is the eternal one. Christ is saying, I will build mine. I belong to him. I am his property. I am his child. I am a member of his family. I am of his household. I will build my church. Then that screams there ought to be a change in my conduct. To whom do I belong? Then get in line with that action. I belong to Christ. And I ought to change everything in how I think and how I act. I will build my church. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption, right? The word redemption means to be bought out of the marketplace of sin. Christ paid the, bl- the price for my sin. I-, I have been bought by Christ. I, I belong to him. It says in Acts 20, 20, he's saying to the Ephesian elders, feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own, what? Blood. So he's telling the elders, you feed the church of God because it belongs to God, which he purchased with his blood. First Corinthians is powerful too. Six seventeen. But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Do we get it that we're joined to the Lord? We're one spirit. That we're, that's, that's pretty intimate. I don't know if you could get more intimate than that. That we're one spirit with him. Or we're built together in this holy habitation, belonging to him, in him, in Christ. So what should be my response? When Paul, when Christ said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You see, when persecuting the church, you're persecuting Christ. It's that intimate. I belong to Christ. God, what, what is my mission to be? God, may I not be, may, may I say, may I not be a slacker? God, I want to be focused. I want to be on mission for you. You're building your church and you've, you've made me part of your church. God, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to do my part. I want to close with the invincibility of the church. But don't take too much comfort in, because I said the word close. It will be just a couple minutes. Um, You know, Christ didn't say, I hope to build my church. Or he didn't say, you know, I'm I'm planning to build it. But Christ said, I will build my church. The church is invincible. A story by, by Spurgeon, if I can read it. He said, a medal was struck by Diocletian, who was a cruel emperor of Rome. 
which still remains bearing the inscription, the name of Christians being extinguished. And in Spain, two monuments were raised. On one was written Diocletian for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. On the other was inscribed Diocletian for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ for having extended the worship of the pagans, of the gods. As a modern writer observed, he makes this statement. We have here a monument raised by paganism over the grave of its vanquished foe. But far from being deceased, Christianity was on the eve of its final and permanent triumph. Neither in Spain or elsewhere can be pointed out the burial place of Christianity, for it is not, for the living have no tomb. It is invincible. The church, because we are connected to Christ, and we go back to Genesis 2.17, the seed of the woman, well, what is he going to do? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Christ has crushed the head of the serpent. We are on the winning side. Final victory, you know, is, is not a hope thing. It's a guaranteed thing. Once in a while, when I say goodnight, I say goodnight to my dad every night. Uh, I get him in bed, and we get a, quite a routine down. He puts his left knee up, and he can't get up. So as he gets up, I get my knee under his rear flip him in, he often smiles, he says, that's quite a ride. But you know, when I say goodnight and we pray and I leave, I'm not guaranteed of tomorrow. In fact, he may outlive me. Um, but I am guaranteed of tomorrow because victory is in Christ. The dead will not stay in the grave that we shall rise and be with Christ. And that's what I'm looking at this next phrase. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, many interpret, have interpreted the gates of hell as the evil forces of Satan attacking the, the church of Jesus Christ, but we're holding on. But I don't think the gates are viewed as a, a, a weapon of warfare here. The purpose of gates isn't to conquer. The purpose of gates is to protect those behind it or to keep those behind it safe or to keep people there so they can't get out. And we look at this, and I, and I believe the statement can be made that a Jew would understand the gates of Hades to be the realm of the dead. And I want to reference two passages here in Isaiah. If we could look at the phrase gates of Hades, gates of hell or gates of Hades in the Greek, here are two passages where it's used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation um, of the Old Testament. In Job chapter 38, have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Or in Isaiah 38, I said in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my days. And verse 11 says, I shall not see... I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. So it's being viewed as the realm of the dead, that they will not live anymore, or so he was concerned about. But he's saying here that the gates of Hades will not be so mighty, will not overpower us, even in the point of death. It will not be able to keep us separate from Christ. Even in death, we will be victorious. Even in death, we will spend eternity with Christ. Gates of hell will not keep us from Christ, keep us from the presence of God for all of eternity. 
You know, there's no power that will keep us. Christ is saying, I will build my church. It says in Romans 6, verse 9, that death no longer has dominion over him, over Christ. And also says then, Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. See, we have the promise of life. We have the promise of, of eternity with Christ. We have the promise of all that, that he's done. Let me just, I know my time, my time is up. There's so much more. But Hebrews 2.14, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. God has promised to us that we shall be victorious. Winston Churchill made specific requests at his funeral. And he said, I want it to be played. I want taps to be played. So at the beginning of the service, taps were played. And that's a traditional military signal that plays, that's played at the end of the day. And at the conclusion of his funeral, taps were played again. But to the surprise of many people, Reveille was immediately followed up. And that's a stern call of troops to action. So right after taps was Reveille. Because what he was really declaring, there's more to and then just to death. And for the Christian, there is reverently that shouting forth, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the end. This is the beginning, Christ says, that we shall live again. But here's the question that we need to conclude with. So what? As we look at all of this in review, what should be my response to this incredible statement, I will build my church? What is to be the response that God's really calling the disciples when he makes such a great statement? In light of God's eternal plan to gather people, and it reaches back to the beginning of man's creation, that God is bringing a people together. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, we shall be together worshiping God in all of eternity. In light of God's plan that he's bringing people together in light of the plan that I, it's an intimate position that I have, my church, that I belong to Christ, that I am, that I'm the property of the creator universe, that I am one with him, that I am one in his spirit. I can't understand that, but that I have a position that is beyond description when I think in light of my future that death will not hold a grasp over me, that absent in the body, present with the Lord, that we shall forever step in his presence, what should be my response in, in all of this? I go back to my third point. God is constructing the church by preaching the gospel. It is my responsibility, it is our responsibility that God calls us as that we would build relationships, that we would be involved in, in, in connecting with people, that we would be involved, that we would be crying out, God, save my neighbor. God, save my acquaintance. God, help me to realize that you have this incredible plan. You're building your church, and you've called me to be on target, to be spot on, to be focused, to keep sharing the word. May God do great work through us as we continue to pray for, to go and grow. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ, our Savior. Lord, we're in an incredible, privileged position. God, may we live out our faith to your honor and your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen.